Heavenly Father, thank you for speaking to us and in your kindness, your generosity, your grace to have what you've said recorded in this book. And so might we come to it this morning, not merely as ink on a page, but what it is, your living and active word. And so help us to have the right posture, help our souls know that they are famished apart from hearing from you. More than anything, God, we ask, and we, we do pray this every week when we mean it every week, no matter whether someone's here, they've been a Christian for 33 years or three years or six months, or God, they're here, they, don't, they, don't, they wouldn't call themselves a Christian, they're asking questions, or maybe they've been gone from church for a long time and this is their first Sunday back. Whatever condition we come in and whatever proximity to Christ we come, what every single person needs most is to leave this time more full of hope and more convinced in what Jesus has done and more full of hope in what Jesus promises to do. And so, Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you lift Christ high that all of our hearts might be drawn after him? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I had a particularly bad week as both a husband and a dad. First half of the week primarily, um, because the second half of the week I was traveling and I wasn't home. Um, just a sort of regularly falling short of my call as a husband to love my wife like Christ loves the church, just being needlessly grumpy and with my kids being um, needlessly harsh. And I was convicted by this. I felt terrible and should. I was convicted for sure before the Lord. I confessed it to God. And then I confessed it to them, and I said, I'm wrong, and I asked them to forgive me, and they graciously forgave me, and I believe God and Christ has forgiven me, and I want to do better next week. This is a sermon for people that want to grow. This is a text for how do we change. If you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, would you stand with me? 2 Peter chapter 1, Lord willing, we will get through this entire section, verse 1 through 15. Simeon, or Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you and the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, 
you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it's right, as long as I'm in the body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able to at any time recall these things. Feel free to grab a seat. This letter comes from a real person that has experienced real change in their lives. Not perfect, but real, written to real people who want the same thing, to, to grow in the knowledge of God, to grow in uh, virtues of, of godliness, to mature into the image of Christ. But this is crucial. It's from righteousness, not for righteousness. It's from what is already a secure standing and status as people in Christ, not for it. Verse 1, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. So stunning line because the person that's saying that, the ours there I think is actually saying of the apostles, the, the, it meant the marked out ones that were commissioned by Jesus to build the early church and to write what's known as the New Testament, the last uh, 27 books of the Bible. He's saying you have a faith that, 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 is, that is equal, that you, that you are seen in God's sight with a sort of righteousness that's not second tier but top shelf. And what it does is it results, this equal privilege, this equal position, this equal righteousness that results in this beautiful word in verse 2, this word peace. This last week, I was flying to Omaha, and uh, Thursday morning, get on the plane, 7.30 departure, we taxi out under the tarmac, and because it was a little frosty, they said, hey, we have to de-ice the plane, and so we sat there a little bit longer, they de-iced the plane, and then, you know, you come around the corner, you get onto the, the runway, you get ready to go, you hear the engines rev up, and the plane begins to, to move faster and faster, and we, we, we get off the ground, and very quickly, within about 15, 20 seconds, we're supposed to turn left, and the plane listed right, so much so that everybody was dangling by their seatbelts towards the edge of the plane, and we're looking down now at, at the city and the, and the water, and there's just this thought of, this is, this is it, and you hear screaming, and people are afraid, and then, then all of a sudden, the plane got righted again, and then it started shaking in sort of an awkward way. It wasn't, it wasn't normal turbulence, and the sound that was happening was, was normal, and just so you don't think I'm overreacting, the person that was next to me, Rob Corley, one of our, our elders was sitting there as well, and he has flown more than anyone that I know. He has 2.8 million miles just on Delta alone. And so we're, we're sitting there, and people are screaming, and we're looking at each other, probably trying not to, to scream, and, and it stood there, and it kind of kept doing that, and then it didn't keep climbing. It just kind of kept going, and then it started turning back towards the airport, and we look at each other and said, I guess we may not be going to, to Omaha. I said, I don't care where we go. I just hope we land. <laughs> And then it seemed to kind of ride itself and then began to, to, to climb, and, and I'm here to tell the tale. He's flown 2.8 million miles on Delta alone, and he looked at me as we're on this flight. He says, I didn't think we were going to make it. <laughs> 
And, and he goes, that's now one of the, the top three times I've been most scared on an airplane. And just so you, you know that, that I'm not just lacking courage, he said the first time the plane caught fire. So this, he said, this is right up there with when the plane caught fire or the other one we were flying into Bangkok and the engine stopped. And so this is, I was like, oh, I'm glad I could be here for one of the three. <laughs> it was such an unsettling feeling. And if you're flying this week, I'm really, really sorry. <laughs> Stats are fine. Stats are in your favor. It, it was unnerving. It was unnerving the entire flight. It wasn't like, oh, I'm sure the plane is just totally fine now. We touched down in Omaha in that feeling of peace. We made it. We made it. Christ gives a peace that nothing can take. Not death, not failure, not slowness to grow, not a bad first half of the week like mine. Nothing in a peace that actually grows. It says, may peace or may grace and peace be multiplied to you. May it actually expand. And not like a temporary peace, because what I had actually when I landed in Omaha was very temporary because I had to get back on a plane the next day. And I was a little more unsettled than, than usual. How do we get this peace? It's this other word in verse two, grace. Unmerited generosity, unmerited favor through faith in verse one. And what these verses are, are articulating is the story of the gospel, that how any of us are right with God is not through our change, not through our obedience, not through our effort, not through our toil, not through our strength, not through our work, not by how good of a dad I am or a husband I am, but because Christ Jesus has come to live perfectly in the place of imperfect people. And then he went to a cross where he took the judgment that I have merited through my knuckleheadishness and my sin. And he went to the tomb and he rose from the dead triumphantly to say, it worked. That word grace is really important. We're going to talk about grit, but before grit, there's grace. David Helm, in his commentary on 2 Peter, says this, this glorious and exalted standing, a faith on par with the apostles, righteous, is said to be ours by the righteousness of God and Savior Jesus Christ, how true this must be. Surely it could not come to us any other way. We are not Superman. We have faults and frailties and have experienced the awful reality of falling into sin. But the gospel of Christ's righteousness is our comfort. Our ability to stand before God someday as rescued and reclaimed persons depends, and I love this word, entirely on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He alone has flown through this world without falling. He alone can and did make atonement for sin. Thus, he alone can bring us home. Grace. It's grace then, grit, as we continue through these verses. My encouragement is don't leave verses 1 and 2 behind. Now, verse 3 makes a very stunning claim. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Granted, which is Grace, again, it's a gift. It's been granted and given. And actually, the language here, it's been given in such a way that it will never be taken away. That God has given, out of his generosity, all things, everything you possibly need for life and godliness, the ability to traffic through this world in a way that honors God, that shows love to him, shows love for neighbor, shows even love for self as we walk in ways that are in accordance with his revealed will. That we can do it. That's what that verse is saying, that you actually can do it. My wife and I, we watch a lot of cooking shows. Um, 
I hate cooking shows. It's not why I was a bad husband last week. That was other things. Um, but we watch a lot of cooking shows, and one of the cooking shows that we started watching recently is a show called Triple Threat. And it's hosted by a guy named Bobby Flay, who if you've ever watched any cooking show, he probably was in it, because he's in every cooking show that's ever existed, it seems like. But the premise of the show is you have three really, really well-known, you know, uh, awarded, opened lots of restaurants, written about all this stuff, world-known chefs, and they call them titans. So you have the three titans, and then they bring on a contestant that is going to cook against each of those Titans, and if they make it through and they beat each of the Titans or they have the most points at the end of it, they get $25,000. And so we're watching the show, and the, the way it works is each of the rounds, there's the revealing of some mystery ingredient. There's two mystery ingredients, and it really is stunning. I mean, if you ever watch shows like this, it blows me away what certain people with certain giftings can do with Brussels sprouts. Like, like Brussels sprouts are, are terrible. If you love them, God bless you. They will not exist in the new creation. They'll taste like a porterhouse. But they can take, you know, just, the, the, just like, like a piece of parsley and, you know, a turnip. And they turn it into something that's absolutely incredible. Here's the reality. If you gave me access to every ingredient that's ever existed, you gave me an unlimited budget to buy whatever I want, you gave me all the time in the world, I'm not going to make anything that's even close to as good as the things that they can make. But the promise of verse 3 is that you actually can do it. Not cook necessarily. <laughs> Some of you are great at it, some of you aren't, but this is saying all the power in the world for life and godliness. By grace, through faith, you already have everything you need. Everything we need to love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. Everything we need to love neighbor as ourself. I'm going to read from the Phillips a few times. Uh, J.B. Phillips did a paraphrase of the New Testament and I love the way he brings out some of the language here from verses three and four. He has, by his own action, given us everything that is necessary for living the truly good life and allowing us to know the one who has called us to him through his own glorious goodness. It is through him that God's greatest and most precious promises have become available to us men and men and women making it possible for you to escape the inevitable disintegration that lust produces in the world and to share in God's essential nature. So verse 3 makes this really big statement. You have everything you need. And then verse 4 goes on to reinforce the, the statement, reinforce how committed God is to resourcing us. God's precious and very great promises have been been granted, and there's a number of places we could look to in the Bible to talk about this promise to be given power to actually be able to change. I'll just look at one verse or a couple verses. We read these last week as we were in a sermon that was kind of the, the, the other side of the coin of this one. But this is God's promise to everyone who believes, Ezekiel 36, 25 and following. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you, saying, you're forgiven that you're washed. But then it, goes, I, then it goes on and it says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. 
this text is saying is you have new capacities in Christ. You have new power in Christ. You have the very spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwelling in you. And the, verse 4 talks about that we might be conformed to a new image, that we might grow up into the stature of Christ. That's all true before we then get to verse 5. So make every effort. Phillips, again, says it like this, for this very reason, you must do your utmost from your side and see that your faith carries with it real goodness of life. Your goodness must be accompanied by knowledge, your knowledge by self-control, your self-control by the ability to endure. Your endurance, too, must always be accompanied by devotion to God. That, in turn, must have in it the quality of brotherliness, and your brotherliness must lead on to Christian love. No, I'm not going today. We're not going to. Maybe we'll dive back in at some point. I'm not going to unpack each of those characteristics or attributes that we see in those verses. They, they would be a worthy study to think of the things that we make every effort to, to nurture and cultivate in our lives. The, what I want to focus on today is the grit part of this. The attributes are the outcome. For now, I really want you to stare at the phrase, make every effort. Make every effort. Now, as you hear me say that, how do you, you know, what, what, what do you immediately feel? Or if I read it like the, the Phillips paraphrase says, you must do your utmost. Like what starts happening in us? I feel like that is, oh, is, is Peter pushing a sort of like works. Okay, I have to do, I have to do it myself. Like I have to figure out how to like work my way into a status and standing before God? Is, is Peter pushing what we would say is like a works righteousness, that we are righteous before God because of how we obey? By no means. I mean, that's verses one and two. He was so clear to say, this is how you're righteous through faith in Christ alone. But is he saying we should have effort because we're saved? Absolutely. Absolutely. I love Dallas Willard's book, The Great Omission, and he clarifies this, I think, so well. Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. What these verses are saying is you're not earning righteousness before God. You're not earning salvation before God. What you're doing is in light of what Christ has done, the reality of being transformed is we're living now in light of that through effort. Look at the connection between verses 3 and 4 and verse 5. For this very reason, you know, if you go back to those verses, well, what's the reason? Like, what's he doing this in light of? And he's saying that, that, that God has given everything, that God has provided everything you need, and then God has brought his promises, he's given you a new life, that verses one and two, that you are now righteous in Christ. If you're a Christian here, you are righteous in Christ right now, robed in what Christ's perfections have accomplished. All of that is true. And he says, for this reason, and then what's the punchline? He doesn't say, do nothing. He doesn't say coast. In light of the perfect work of Christ that has guaranteed your salvation, make every effort. Grace and grit are not sworn enemies. They're best friends. In fact, if you go into verses 3 through 7 in the original language, what you'll see is that they, it's actually one sentence. There's, there's no pauses. There's no periods. That the, the whole sentence flows together. 
They're not antithetical to one another. There's really no break. It flows, maybe we'd say, supernaturally together. Last week's house rule, one degree of change is... Let me, let me see if you remember. You can help me, with it. Uh, help me with the end of it. One degree of change is still change and worth... Amen. A little bit of growth. It's not as fast as we want, but it's, but it's real. It's so we don't get disheartened and discouraged and give up because we're not quite where we want to be. I can be one degree a better husband this next week and one degree a better dad this next week. And I suggested that, that perhaps the best mascot for Christian growth is, is something like a snail. We want it to be like a peregrine falcon, you know, 210 miles an hour, whatever it is. But it's often not. It's like a snail. It kind of gets there. Let me suggest to you, I think, what is the worst mascot for a Christian? It's a jellyfish. You know, jellyfish, you know, they just kind of blob along, right? They have a little bit of agency. They can kind of resist the tides, but really, they just kind of float. They just kind of go wherever the currents take them. If we want verses 6 and 7, as you look at this incredible list, of attributes, of qualities, of love and, and self-control and knowledge and steadfastness and godliness. If you want verses six and seven, you, you gotta go through five. Make every effort. Do your utmost. This past week, um, Corbin, who is, was, uh, our, is our music director, we interact on... The, the core text of, of the service because we like to orient our songs and kind of the flows. We think through the liturgy of, of a Sunday gathering. How are all these pieces telling the story of the gospel and applying the word of God? And so he's like, hey, I just wanted to check in and confirm the, the core text that we're looking at. And I, I said, sure, no problem. So I sent to him, I slacked him. I said, hey, here's the text we're gonna do. And then like seven minutes later, I said, actually, it's not that text. It's gonna be this other text. And then seven minutes later, I said, actually, it's gonna be this text, not that text. And two minutes later, I said, nope, it's not that one. And he said, how about you just get back to me when you figure it out? And here's why it took so long. There are so many passages that say what 2 Peter says. This is not unique in the Bible. 1 Timothy 4, 7 through 10, have nothing to do with irreverent silliness. Rather, train yourself for godliness. And then down in verse 10, for to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God. 1 Corinthians 9.24 and following, do you, do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Philippians 2, 12 and following. And I want this to feel like a fire hydrant. That's intentional. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Colossians 3, 5, put to death. Therefore, what is earthly in you? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. 1 Timothy 6, 11 and 12, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And here's why I do that. Train, toil, strive, run, discipline, control, work out, put to death, flee, fight the good fight, take hold. Those are not sub-Christian words. And they're not anti-gospel words. 
And they're not anti-grace words. They're the fruit of the grace of God really being applied in our lives that says, I've forgiven you and I've empowered you for transformation. Grace and grit are best friends. This text says that real change is, is possible. Let me try to come at that, though, from another, another angle. Um, if we have everything we need, then why don't we grow? Or maybe as, grow as we want. First answer I would, first response I would give to you is actually we do grow. This room is full of people that are not what they used to be, even as we are not yet what we one day will be. And so be encouraged in that. The reality is, is there's a lot of transformation in this room. There's a lot of change. There's a lot of growth in all of our lives. We revisit the question, though, why don't we maybe grow to the extent that we want to? Why is it that, that we feel this dissonance? Why is it that I had a not very good first half of the week as a husband, as, as a dad? Why? Um, there, there's a lot of reasons to that. We get discouraged at the pace of our growth, and so sometimes we give up. The world is just so shiny, easy to distract us. Maybe we, we stopped reading at verse four of a text like this and we didn't get to five and said, actually, it might take some effort. As one author said, one of the big reasons we don't grow is sometimes we're just lazy. This last week, I was slack in my pursuit of holiness. I don't think I'm being hard on myself. I think I'm being honest. Now, no doubt we can be overly critical and overly hard on ourselves and hard on others, but we can also be maybe a little bit passive and perhaps aloof. And what we want to do is avoid either ditch. And, and, and one of the things I like about this series as we do this series on house rules is we're not leaving behind any of the, the, the future ones. And actually, the other house rules allow me to have a moment of honesty where I need to step up and I need to invest myself as a dad or a husband in the things that God has called me to. You know, we started this series with it's okay to not be okay. That's still true. It's okay to not be okay, to admit failure, to admit I stumbled, to admit I messed up because Christ didn't, amen? He did it perfectly. So as I'm flawed and cracked and trip, he never did. We can start with what's right, not what's wrong. At the end of the day, the definition of who I am is not a failure as a husband or a father. I'm, I'm redeemed in Christ. That is true on my best day and on my worst day. The reality that everyone's a work in progress, what it does when we have that house rule is it standardizes the reality. It's like we have not yet gotten there. One degree of change is still change. I can look towards this next week and, and know that growth is possible. It may not be perfect, but it could be real. And to know that I want to change, to say, hey, it's okay, it's not okay, and I don't want to stay there. What's the solution? It's not the solution. I want to offer to you, this is not, Second Peter's not giving you the only way we grow, but let me give you, it's one of God's key strategies is this, make every effort. D.A. Carson, I've pulled this paragraph out a number of times over the years, and it always hits hard. And perhaps some, for, for some of us today, maybe it doesn't need to for you. For some of us, maybe it does. People do not drift towards holiness. Apart from grace-driven, and that is so important, grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate towards godliness, prayer, obedience to Scripture, faith and delight in the Lord. 
We drift towards compromise and call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide towards godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. No jellyfishes. Make every effort to do what is to supplement. Supplement our faith. Remember verses 1 and 2. Please keep going back to you. If you are in Christ, you are righteous. This is about how we grow up into that. To supplement means to provide at one's own expense, to pay it out of your account. But even that with these verses that proceed, that God has granted all things, what we might say is this, you are out of your own account with your own agency, actually are paying out of an account that God has already funded. You're just living according to what you are in Christ with a new nature, with a spirit that causes us to walk. It's, it's like a grace-funded, a grace-fueled grit. Last week, I, I shared this illustration of uh, getting ready to go to the airport, which I never wish I went to the airport, but, but, but um, pulled up Apple Maps, and there's a number of days away. I had to get there on a Thursday morning, 7.30, and so I love how Maps lets you put the day, the time you want to arrive, and through all their algorithms and information, they can tell you exactly when to leave, and it tells you the exact route to, to take, and the reality is Maps can tell me this is how to get to the airport, how to get to that destination, but what it can't do is give me the power to do it. What I need is, is a vehicle that works. I need a car that, that, that runs. Um, I, I, I need gas in the car. And the great thing is, like, if I take the wrong turn, maps will automatically reroute to, to get me back on. The Word of God is so like that. It tells us exactly where to go. need the power to do it, and that's what the promises of God. I've granted to you all things. I've given you the ability to, I've given you the map and I've given you the ability. And so then this last Thursday, I did get into the car and I headed to SeaTac. Regretfully. Um, the car provided the power to get there. The, the, the plane um, limped along to get me to Omaha. The vehicles worked. And here, here was my part, though. I saw it a sudden alarm. And I still had to go to bed the night before at a certain time so I'd hear the alarm. I still had to, when the alarm went off, actually get up and to the alarm instead of just hit snooze again. And I had to grab my bag, and I had to walk to the car, and I had to open the car, and I had to get in. And I, I mean, I, I had to do, now, now, behind that is still God's grace, but here's what it felt like. It felt like work. It felt like work. Behind our grit is always God's grace, but it still feels like this. It feels like work. It feels like making every effort. That's partly how change happens. Grace and grit are best friends. We can change. We have the ability to change. It's work. It's grace-fueled work, but it's still work. And so what helps motivate us to do the work? I would suggest to you verses 6 and 7, but also verses 8, and, uh, 8 through 11. For if these qualities are yours, verse 8, and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know anybody that wants to be ineffective. Or unfruitful. I don't know anybody that wants to be ineffective or unfruitful. And so the idea here is, is, is to get a vision of what God would do through grace-fueled effort. 
Antoinette de uh, saint Exupéry, as you can tell, I'm fluent in French, um, has this great line. If you want to build a ship, don't drum up the men to gather wood, divide the work, and give orders. Instead, teach them to yearn for the vast and endless sea. You know, building a ship takes a lot of work, but the way you get people to do the work is to say, do you know how beautiful it is out there? Do you know what, we, do you know what it's going to be like? Do you know where we're going? Peter's doing the same thing. He's saying, let these words stir you in such a way that, wait, I can be fruitful. I can be helpful. I can love God. I can pursue godliness. I cannot get derailed. I can have self-control. I'll just put it in my last, I can, I can love my wife better. I can be tender with my kids like the father is with us. So you get a vision for this. I've taught three out of my four kids to drive. Um, fourth one's coming soon. I'm in the middle of teaching my, my third youngest to drive. And this is how I've started out with each, each of them is we, we go out to the driveway, we jump in, in the car, they get in the driver's side, I get in the passenger side, we sit down, and I just kind of say, okay, now what do you do? And, uh, and, they, and you know, it always scares you, we say, you mash the gas pedal. It says, no, no, we don't, we don't mash the gas pedal. So what do we do? It's like, okay, you got to, like, put your belt on. Okay, put your belt on. And what else do you do? Oh, you should probably adjust the mirrors. Okay, adjust the mirrors, adjust the seat. Get everything where it's supposed to be. And then I, then I say, okay, before we turn the car on, the most important thing is what? And the uh, most, most important is brake. The brake, don't brake dad's car, brake, brake, brake on the get pedal. So where's the brake? And so I just practice all the time. It's like, brake, and see how fast I can do it. We're just doing like as quick as we can. And then eventually when I feel like they know where the brake pedal is, then, then I say, okay, now you can turn the car on. So they, you know, put your foot on the brake and press the start button. And it's always funny when someone gets in a car and they've never powered a car up because there's a little bit like, whoa, this, is, this, got, this got some, some power. And I'm like, that's right, it's an Impreza. And so... <laughs> I'll have you know. <laughs> and we sit there, and I'm like, okay, hit the brake again. You know, everything's ready. And then, and then I say, okay, now what I want you to do is sit in neutral. We're still just in the driveway. And I said, now hit the gas. And they, you know, they barely press on the, you know, it kind of goes up. And it's like, ooh, that's amazing. And then I said, now really hit the gas. And they hit it, and it just really goes up. I said, it's like, this thing is powerful. And I said, okay, now, now we're ready to drive. So they put it into to drive, and then we slowly start. We creep out of the driveway, and what I have them do is go in our cul-de-sac. We're in a cul-de-sac with about 12 homes, and there's a cul-de-sac right next to it with, with about 10 homes. That makes up our whole neighborhood. And so we do a little loop through our cul-de-sac, and as we're going, you know, we're going five miles an hour. I'm like, break! You know, I just yell it out randomly just to see how quick they can stop. You know, and we'll, we... It's not to scare them, it's so we don't run anyone over. And so, so we keep doing that, and then we get to the top of my cul-de-sac, and there's a, there's a stop sign, and then a small little road that connects to the next cul-de-sac. So I say, okay, take a left. We're going to go down to the next cul-de-sac, and we go down, and we do that cul-de-sac, and, and they're getting better and more comfortable, and then we do it again. We repeat. We go up to our cul-de-sac, go through, and then we take a left, and we go down to the next cul-de-sac, and then we come up, and then we do ours again, and then we take a left, and we keep doing this for like half an hour. It's very boring. And so the, the, the last time we're coming up our cul-de-sac, we stop at the stop sign, and I look to the right, and they look over, and it's U Street, a main road. I said, that road connects with every other road. If you know how to drive, you can go anywhere. And I was like, Dad, can we go? like, no, park the car. <laughs> You're not ready yet. We never get more than like three or 400 feet away from our house. Wouldn't it be a tragedy if that's all we ever did? We missed out on like where we could go. 
You're given all this power, all this ability, all things that pertain to life and godliness. Wouldn't it be bad if we just went six miles an hour in a cul-de-sac? God wants something more for us. And one of the ways, it's not the only way, I want to keep reinforcing it. It's not the thing that makes us right with God. That's the work of Christ alone. And our effort's not the only thing that changes us, but Peter is saying, make every effort. Recently, I presented to, to the elders and then to our advisory council and to our staff a, a three, five, and 10-year vision for our church. Just these bullet points, trying to give some vision, like where, what might God do? What might it look like to be fruitful and effective? An application for you from this text is take verses five through seven, take these words, these phrases, godliness and self-control, this increasing reality of, 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 of tending to these things, this effectiveness and this fruitfulness. What might it look like in your life in three years and in five years and in 10 years? As you sow into these things, as you make every effort, I mean, the, the, the type of friend you, you might be, the type of person who forgives, the way you might love your city, the way, you, the way you might manage people that the Lord has placed under your care, the way you might be tender with your, your kids or instruct them, the way you might honor your parents, the kind of person you'll be on your, your sports team, the sort of 18-year-old you'll be at your high school. Like, what might that picture be like? Like, make every effort. Grace and grit are best friends. Verse 9 is a, is a word for the, for the nearsighted, and really 9 into the following. I would say that all of these verses are for everyone at all times, but these might be words for long-time Christians. That sometimes we forget what we've been given, and sometimes we forget where we've come from, and sometimes we get tired of doing the things we used to do. It says those who have, have forgotten this stuff, they become so nearsighted, it's like they're blind. They don't even see. And this is meant to bring into focus what's actually there to point it out, to, to remind, again, for whoever lacks these qualities, is so nearsighted, he's blind, haven't forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So I listened to a podcast this last week, and one of the guys on it is a, uh, is a little league coach, coaches kids in, in baseball, and says, my, one of my favorite things to do is to, to coach because I, I, I love pulling out of these kids what, what has been put in them. And he says, and my favorite kids to do that with are the ones that have, you can just tell, they, they got it, but they're not yet using it. They have all this ability, but for whatever reason, they're, they're, they're just not, they're not actuating it. And so what, he, what the coach says he does is at the proper time and the proper place and proper way as he pulls them aside, and he kind of stoops down, looks in their eyes and, and basically speaks into their life, that what they have. And, and it's amazing. He says it's happened every single time. Those kids respond, and they put it into practice. Peter's doing that for us today. He, he's saying, look what you have in you. By the grace of God, look at who you are. By the grace of God, remember what you've been cleansed in. By the grace of God, and now make every effort. And verses 10 through 11, again, are amplifying what's already said and then introducing this idea of make every effort in practice, to keep practicing, to keep at it. You know, if you remember one of the reasons I, I stated that sometimes we, we, we give up is we're just discouraged by our progress. 
Practice, though, it has a tendency to make better, even if not perfect. I love how C.S. Lewis says in A Mere Christianity, he says, virtue, even attempted virtue, brings light. Indulgence brings fog. Just trying has a tendency to keep us at least tethered to Christ and to keep trying. I get it. I've tried. You've tried. It doesn't always work. Sometimes it does. Sometimes quickly. Oftentimes not. But that's why you practice. That's why you make every effort. That's why we're all the more diligent to keep practicing. WD-40, anyone have it in their house? Everyone in the world has it, um, works for everything. WD-40, I think, is a great metaphor for Christian growth. It's called WD-40. The WD stands for, anyone know? Water displacement. WD-40, 40, because the guy tried 39 times and it didn't work. And so it was the 40th attempt. That's when it finally worked. And if he gave up, we'd all have squeaky doors forever. You keep practicing. Grace and grit are best friends, and we keep practicing so we don't end up where this text goes, that we fall. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. The word fall in verse 10 is really important. Peter, the one writing this, actually knows what it's like to stumble. If you go back to his life, you see a number of instances where he got it wrong. But what he wants to help us avoid is a fall. Fall means to lose one's footing. It can also mean to experience disaster. In the context of this, as he says, I am, um, like, you are people that are already equal footing with the apostles. You share in this faith. So, so I, I think this is how he's using, that, using it, is to say to keep going. Again, a word for those primary, maybe, Maybe not, not exclusively, but maybe primarily for those that have been in Christians a long time. Sometimes the things that we used to do, we stop doing. I have shared multiple times, probably over the last year, I, um, I used to work out somewhat regularly, um, and then I stopped lifting weights like eight years ago. I have all the stuff in my garage. And I share it, and I, and I say, you know, I used to do this, and I really need to get back to it. And I said it again about a month ago, and I still haven't gotten back to it. I just still have not started. And some of it is I look at them, and I just am like discouraged. It's like I used to do this. I used to be really dialed with this. I used to be disciplined with this. But it's just been so long. It's hard. I feel like I'm in such a, a hole. I feel like I'm so far set back. I feel like I've fallen so far. I just don't want to start again. Here's how it happened. I took one week off. And that one week became two. And that two weeks became four. Four weeks became a year, and a year has been eight years. Peter's aim here is to say, make every effort until Jesus comes back. One of God's key strategies in growing us and preserving us is to not stop. Do the right stuff over the long haul. Keep practicing. I was in a car. Got a, uh, a, I was in a car for about a couple hours with a with a 66 year old man who loves Jesus. Loved Jesus for I th- I think it would be like 54 years or so, something like that. And we're, he, it was so great to just hear these stories of his life. And at some point in the conversation, um, 
And a lot of them, very ordinary, very regular, but, but the fruit of a text like this. And at some point in the conversation, I looked at him and I said, it sounds to me like you actually don't have a lot of regrets with your life. He says, I don't really. And oh, he's got sin. He would say all of those things, but he says, I don't really. And I was like, that's amazing. How? He just kept doing this stuff over and over and over and over and over and over again. Let me apply this, and then I'll wrap up. Let me apply this to something that's, that's happening. And I want this to be an encouragement to you because you're actually in the room. Um, but there's, a, there's something happening in the United States, dubbed right now as the great de-churching. 40 to 50 million people right now that used to be regularly part of a church. And they are no longer part of a church. And the majority of those people, based on this incredible study that was done, didn't walk away from the church because they were angry at the church or they disagree with the theology. They're, they still um, profess faith in Christ and believe the gospel. The reason they're no longer part of a church is really good things in life just sort of got in the way. Careers, kids' sports, homes, golf, your pillow. Like, that's a hard thing to get up off of, isn't it? Well, Sunday morning, it's warm under the covers and the pillow. I'm with Brother Pillow today and Deacon Quilt. Um, yeah, just jokes. Um, but here's the sad thing about it is it's just, it's just a drift. It's just a drift. And, and one Sunday becomes two Sundays and four Sundays. It's not that you can never miss a Sunday. Don't miss two in a row. Just joking. Um, just joking. <laughs> just joking. And then it becomes four, and then it becomes a year, and then it becomes 10. Then it becomes a lifetime. And that's not the only application. We could do it to reading our Bibles, to, to praying, to serving, to, to whatever it is. So make every effort and keep making every effort. And you will never fall. The never in verse 10, it's actually, it's like you will not never. You will not not fall. It's, it's a double stated emphatics. Like, you, like it's guaranteed. It's guaranteed. And then Peter ends the text, and I won't walk through these, reinstating again, giving his effort again to restating and reinforcing what's already been said. You have everything you need. Make every effort by grace. And God will grow you. Perfectly, no. In reality, yeah. I had, I had a bad week. I love that this text says this week can be different. This passage is inspiring. It's convicting. And because of the grace of God, it doesn't have to be crushing. Grace and greater best friends. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you um, apply this text into each of our lives exactly how we need it? If it's a word of encouragement of just people that are running the race well, it's so possible to do that because of your kindness and your grace and your intervention. And so we want to recognize there's, I could, I could almost randomly point to people in this room that I know their stories and they are examples of your grace in action. For some of us, God, maybe today is a little more convicting. And we're not attending to verse five. We're not making every effort. 
which again is fueled by your grace. And we want to be able to say with, with another verse of the Bible and another author of the Bible that, that I worked harder than anyone, but it was not me. It was the grace of God in me. So we know that hard work is ultimately the work of you in us. So we're asking that you put that into action for us this week. For some of us, we just drift. It's been a year of drift. It's been five years of drift. Maybe for some of us, it's been five days of drift. God, would you, would you let this text reorient us back to the things that matter, that we don't stumble and end up in disaster? You want better for us than that. We want better for ourselves. We want better for those around us. And we thank you that the truth of this text is no matter how little or how much we change, we are no more loved. And that right now we are righteous because of Christ. So send the Spirit. Keep changing us. Fill us again. For our good, for your glory. And our impact on those around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.